Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash FutureInvestor slash radio. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. So, you know, I got Lee Klaskow here in the, in the studio. He covers all the transportation, all the logistics. So he's the blame for all the supply chain stuff. But he does that for Bloomberg Intelligence. And I was just telling him, I just read this book, book 99% of Everything, which is a book basically about the global container shipping business. And it was a summer beach read on the Jersey Shore because you look at these big ships off the coast of the Jersey Shore and you think about it. And it got me to thinking, that's a tough business, boy. I mean, that is a tough business. And I saw that Maersk, uh, you know, one of the biggest container shipping companies, they reported some numbers today. Lee, talk to us about Maersk and then help us think about where we are in this global supply chain challenge that really is a global sure, issue. Sure, sure. So Maersk is like the number one or number two uh, global container liner, depending on the day and the month. Um, but, you know, they, they reported great earnings, and a lot of that had to do with going on in their ocean business, which is really core to, to what they are. And, and that's been driven by really, really strong contractual rates. Um, you know, what we have seen, though, is that, you know, we're probably at peak earnings for these cotton container liner uh, companies, and rates are going to get a lot weaker. And the spot market rates are down around 78% year over year. Uh, we're at levels that we haven't wow. seen since. Boy, May. they move a lot, don't they? They do. It's it's and it's because it's a, it's a really I mean, the, the liners won't tell you this, yep. but it's a commoditized business. You know, they they ship a box from point A to point B, uh, and the lower price, the lowest price, that's the new price. And so it's a it happens to be a very irrational market because a lot of the players. Uh, are, are subsidized, if you will, by uh, you know the, the country of origin of where they are, because most of the players are uh, the major players are based out of Asia. There's a couple of large European players that are a little more, I would call them disciplined and rational when it comes mm -hmm. to pricing. So you know we expect like we're we're we're, we're sailing past peak earnings, uh, and you know next year is going to be a lot more challenging because of that irrational behavior. There's a great chart uh, rolling around on the Bloomberg terminal somewhere that shows these container freight rates just completely making a U-turn. And they're now back to, I want to say pre-pandemic levels are almost there. Um, what happened to where in a supply chain crisis, which, by the way, has not been fixed yet as far as I, as far as I understand. So why are these freight rates coming down if there's still this premium, in theory, to, to bring things from abroad? Yeah, I mean, it really has, it stems first and foremost from demand. So demand is off. So typically around now is, is what we call the peak season for freight as like retailers get ready for Christmas uh, and the holidays. And as you know, a lot of like large big box retailers are complaining about their inventory is a little too high. Uh, and then you have that, you throw on top of that high inflation. Uh, so the, you know, the consumer has been relatively uh, uh, resilient. But the reality is, is this peak season is going to be very muted. There might be a little bit of, of, of a benefit, uh, not for, for the liner industry, but maybe for the trucking industry, um, you know, in December. Uh, but, you know, all expectations are is, is the peak is pretty much a wash this year. And some of that has to do with, um, you know, the demand trends that I talked about. But also a lot of it has to do with last year, the comparables were just off the chart. 
So, all right, you cover not only, you cover the whole transportation supply chain, if you will, the big uh, ocean-going ships, the, the railroads, the trucks, the whole thing. Let's talk about the railroads here. I get my container into a port. Um, are the rails prepared to get it to where it needs to go in a timely fashion and in a way that they can make money? Yeah, so the, the rails are, uh, you know, one of the, one of the best businesses, in my, my opinion, uh, with freight transportation. You know, they have really high margin business. Obviously, the, uh, the barriers to entry are pretty high. Yeah. Uh, no one's, no one's, <laughs> no Building one's a new laying railroad. down track in, in North America. But with the rails, the problems that they were facing really has to do with labor. Uh, you know, A, they had a tentative agreement. Uh, that wasn't ratified by two unions, and there's a true, there's a real risk of of a of a, of a strike in mid-November. We think that risk is pretty darn low. Um, and what the rails have been doing uh, over the last, I'd say, since the, the 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 depth of the pandemic, is trying to resource their networks through hiring and training new employees. And what they found is, you know, in in cycles past, they would. Uh, they would furlough their employees and they'd call them back up and the employees would want to come back. But this time around, for some reason, the employees are like, yeah, I've had enough of being a railroader. Uh, I'm going to go work in a warehouse or I'm going to go do something else. Okay. Or maybe I'm going to retire early. Who knows? Um, because, you know, you know, it, it is a hard job. It's outside. So you're in the 100 degree heat, the zero degree right. cold. Um, but, you know, it is, is a very uh, well-paid, uh, unionized, unionized job. But some of these... Uh there you go. Thank you. <laughs> Paul coming to my rescue with the mic. Um, some of these issues, though, haven't 100% been solved yet from, from the rail strike perspective that um, that we were just talking about. I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think November 19th is the next day that we're looking for um, if the kind of voting and negotiations don't fully go through. What are the ripple effects here? How bad could it get? I mean, you know, the stats that I've seen, and I'm sure a lot of people have seen that are listening to this, it's, it, it could cost the economy $2 billion a day. Wow. So no one wants that. Yep. I mean, the unions don't want that. The, the railroads don't want that. Our politicians don't want that. I don't want that. Um, you know, so it'll really muck up supply chains just at a time when supply chains are trying to normalize. Um, and the speed of that normalization is really being driven by labor availability. And, you know, that's why we're, you know, um, you know, Paul, we were talking off the air before, like why we're not using the R word is because, you know, the consumer is still pretty resilient. Um, you know, you might get a recession that is uh, shallow uh, and short, uh, but at the end of the day, you know, freight demand doesn't look terrible over the mm -hmm. next 12 months. It may not be as great as it was last year, which again, right, reopening yep. was, was a real, real tough comp. All right, Lee, great stuff as always. Love getting you uh, here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Even better, you get a gold star for that. Lee Klaskow, sector head, senior analyst. He covers all the freight transportation, logistics, think freight containers, railroads, trucks, and everything uh, in between. He does that for Bloomberg Intelligence. He's been doing that on Wall Street for decades, so we appreciate getting his insights here. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. All right, this is what you do, or this is what I do when I want to talk fixed income. I go I and go on the Bloomberg terminal that gets me the Bloomberg Index browser. I scroll down to the Bloomberg U.S. aggregate total return value unhedged 
uh, index for uh, bonds. It's off 15.5% this year. And fixed income nerds tell me that has never happened. So, of course, I feel like I got to jump in the deep end of the pool, both feet, and start buying. But let me check with a professional before I do that. Natalie Trevithick, head of investment grade credit strategy at Payton and Regal, joins us. So, Natalie, it's got to be the mother of all times to buy fixed income today. Am I right or wrong on that one? I think you're absolutely right. It's never been more attractive. The only issue is it keeps getting more and more attractive every <laughs> okay. day. So you continue to see these negative returns roll in. <laughs> so what's kind of just give us as we now have, you know, nine, 10 months of hindsight here uh, for the fixed income market. How did we get to this point here? And how did it become like, again, smart people like you tell me we've never seen this in fixed income before. Yeah, so we were priced for perfection in credit at the end of 2021. We had very anemic uh, credit spreads, particularly in the front end of the curve. It was hard to even get half a percent in yield. And this forced investors down the credit spectrum from investment grade down to high yield to CLOs. But what we see now is really a rate-driven move by all of the Fed hikes so far that has driven these negative returns. And I think it's gone a lot further than people were anticipating at the beginning of the year. And as we get closer to the end of the hiking cycle, it feels like investors are getting a little bit more confident about wanting to re-dip their toes into the fixed income market. You know, the two-year at 4.5% is looking pretty attractive. Natalie, I love that you brought up the negative yielding debt because it really wasn't that long ago. It's only a year and a year and a half ago. Now you can actually make money uh, by having the privilege of lending to a lot of these sovereign governments. But I have to ask, in this year and year and a half, the amount of bond volatility is that not discouraging in itself to hop into the bond market? Yeah, that bond volatility that we've seen in spreads has been a little bit discouraging. But you would think that as the absolute yield rises and underlying treasury rates, that investors should demand a higher risk premium for dipping down from treasuries into corporate. So, I mean, I look at the two-year here, 4.53%. There's no real reason to take any extra risk by going out on the yield curve, is there? Well, there is if you think things are going to get better and we, the Fed is able to orchestrate a soft landing because you can get 6% by staying in pretty high-quality front-end investment-grade corporates. So if we were to get a pause soon in the Fed's hiking cycle and if credit spreads were to um, tighten next year, you could actually get incremental positive return by taking that extra risk by moving into credit as opposed to treasuries alone. Well, Paul brings up the two-year, and if you actually look at the two-year and the 10-year and the kind of overlay it with, say, the terminal rate of, what, 5%, which is now being priced in the peak in March 2023, it kind of seems like there's still a long way to go when it comes to the yield. How high can it go? Well, we think the curve can remain inverted for a while, so it wouldn't be too surprising to see the two-year move up higher to that 5%, particularly we think the Fed's going to pause at this higher range. But we are seeing some investors who are anticipating uh, Fed cuts eventually, maybe not next year, but the following year, and think locking in 4% on the 10-year plus adding some credit spread on top of that is still attractive to lock in longer-term higher yields rather than be forced with reinvesting in a couple of years. Natalie, I started my career in, as a credit research guy at the Chase Manhattan Bank. Do I have to break out some of my old credit models if I'm worried about a recession here and credit quality and all that stuff? Well, the good news is credit fundamentals are still actually pretty strong. Some of the negative news that we're seeing in the equity market, such as dividend cuts or slowing down of share buybacks, 
are actually positive for bondholders. Companies are really focused on managing their balance sheets and want to keep leverage in check. So we don't think there's actually going to be a big downgrade wave here um, as companies really want to make sure that they're maintaining their investment grade ratings. I thought we were done. We're not. <laughs> uh, let me ask you about uh, simply the high yield market here. There seems to be some divergence in terms of the commodity uh, moves and commodity forecasts. If you are perhaps forecasting a recession, a lot of these oil prices and oil contracts are the first to fall, the first to collapse. What does that do to high yield? Yeah, we think that could be a little bit challenging for high yield, but we are not forecasting a collapse in energy prices. We think they stay kind of in this 80 range or higher. And at this level, these companies are still, in, are still throwing off quite a bit of free cash flow. We do think a lot of energy bonds have already priced in these um, strong markets. So we think there could be some potential downside, but we don't think there's going to be another wave of downgrades like we saw immediately post the pandemic. All right, Natalie, great stuff. Really appreciate uh, getting some of your time this morning. Natalie, Natalie Trevithick, Head of Investment Grade Credit Strategy uh, at Payton and Regal. All right, let's talk technology here. You know, we had tech earnings over the last week. Uh, broadly defined, they were disappointing, particularly if you have any advertising exposure. And it kind of got me thinking, is there going to be a little bit of a reset in this market about how the market thinks about technology? So let's bring in Anurag Rana. He's a senior software IT services analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, you know, I think really, Anurag, since the great financial crisis, tech, broadly defined, has led this market higher. It's been the leader. It's had the premium valuation, the premium performance. Is that narrative, has that changed in the last week to 10 days? It has. I think the, the biggest thing is where does it bottom from a valuation point of view? We have seen massive spending in technology over the last five years. The pandemic sped it up. Um, so, so companies were spending quite a bit on that. Then now when you see a recession on the horizon, you do pull back a little bit. Now you pull back usage, you put back hardware equipment upgrades, you pull back software, all of those things have. But you know, one of the things we would say is our biggest thing has been in the last six months, we saw no revision in estimates. That was our biggest complaint going in that we have not seen any revision of estimates. And one of the numbers I will highlight is in November of last year, when market was really at top, market was expecting, let's say for Microsoft, $236 billion in revenue for calendar of 2023. Till about a month ago, till about, I would say three weeks ago, they were still expecting that number to, to be there. And I checked it last night, it's gone down to 226. So a $10 billion reduction, about a 4% 4 or so. So we are seeing numbers come down now. I think this is the time when sell side is going to take the numbers down. And I think that's what will drive the reset. Well, if you what does what does a reset look like then? I mean, are we looking at valuations that are coming back to, I want to say twenty eighteen perhaps? Uh, if twenty nineteen, even then, we were thought that tech was borderline in a bubble. What does it look like? Uh, I would argue that now we are well below our pre-pandemic levels at this yeah. point. For all the technology stocks, including software, you know, Microsoft, Apple, all these companies, the, the thing that I do want to highlight is, let's say for the sake of argument for a company like Microsoft that has grown three to five years at about 15, 16% in constant currency, they're still going to grow eight to 10% over the next 12 months too. Yeah. And then the year after that, when it rebound comes back, it's going to come back actually stronger because you just cannot live without upgrading some of this stuff. So it's a pause we are going to see for the next 12 months, but uh, you know, we, we are very optimistic about a bounce back. 
how about, you know, I know the backbone of Bloomberg Intelligence Research is the data. We have the best data on Wall Street. We spend a lot of money for this data. And for you guys in the tech space, one of your sources I know is IDC, and they've got just kind of industry-leading data as it relates to all amounts of uh, spending across the technology stack. What are they saying over the next several years in terms of tech tech spend, given what we've just yeah. experienced over the last few years? So, I mean, I've built my own mental model, which I can explain, and I think IDC is uh, you know somewhere plus or minus 2% on that. The way I look at it, if the, if the global world is gonna grow at two to 3%, technology spending is going to be two to three times of that. So let's say four to 9%. Um, in that, hardware is going to be low single digits, software is going to be 10% plus, and service is going to be around 5 to 7%. So software is the key driver there uh, in double digits. And, and in fact, you could look at any company today, Salesforce, ServiceNow, you will still see estimates above 15% for this, ServiceNow above 25%. So we have a long way to go before we reach maturation uh, in, in the software growth rates. What about kind of rate sensitivity here? A lot of these big tech names were kind of the poster child of, if the Fed hikes, these are the first names you sell. And and although that made sense when you had these massive balance sheets and all this cash and all this liquidity, what happens now that some of that cash has been deployed and the rates market is kind of peaking and kind of stalling yep. out? Doesn't that mean that tech should be I thriving can, now? I, I would say that the day we get this news that the pivot is there, uh, we're gonna have a one hell of a tech rally now. I don't know when that day is. That is that gonna be today? <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know. I don't. I, 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 that's the thing I cannot predict. But um, that's gonna happen. I mean, it may not happen now. Six months, twelve months, even longer. But uh, that's the day we're gonna have this conversation because all these companies are very resistant to uh, any kind of a downturn because of the work that they do. But we're already there, though. If you're looking at the market expectations, they're already stalling out at 5% in March of 2023. And there's an argument here that that's going to create some sort of floor for the equity market. But does that mean that tech leads that? Oh, it has to. There is no uh, no other way because that has the highest beta. Those are the ones that were killed more. That's where the discount rate really, you know, yeah. completely demolished the valuations of it. But I think in, in, in conjunction with what I said to Paul earlier, the revenue estimates and, and, and uh, profit estimates needs to come down. And I think they're starting to come down. I think, you know, it could be another month or so when we see a bottom for that. I think that coupled with the rates is what drives the market up then. All right, let's talk about Microsoft. Um, Satya Nadella, Nadella, I think is one of the most under, believe it or not, you know, the undervalued or under-recognized folks out in Silicon Valley, what he's done with that company. Uh, but I'm looking at the FA function for Microsoft. and. A little bit of a slowdown in growth in the 23 consensus estimates, 8.5%, uh, presumably baking in some type of recession. But then you look at 24, 25, 26, Wall Street's still predicting 13, 14% revenue growth. That's pretty darn good. I, Is that? I would argue it's, better, it's going to be better than that, better 24. Than that. Because it's going to be close to 16 to 18%. If I do not look at any FX headwinds at that point, we are assuming you know dollar cannot get stronger you know forever right. uh, at that at that end. But even if I was to exclude this, because we saw this during the pandemic, if you were to go look at the data during the pandemic, and we published a note on this yesterday, that cloud growth rates dipped quite a bit in the four quarters since the pandemic started, and the year after that, growth rates picked up. Uh, in their cloud business, which is very unusual because the size of that business is very large. So for growth rates to accelerate, and, and we think that's going to same thing's going to happen going into 24. Well, 
talking about cloud adoption here, because I think um, your colleague Mandeep Singh actually talked about uh, the fact that this is a market. I, I don't want to mess up the numbers here, but this is a market that has I want to say like four or five like or billion or trillion or some some sort yeah. of big, big, yeah. big number, but that only a, a fraction of it has really been unlocked. Yep. But a lot of that is because a lot of these companies haven't actually adopted it fully. About 30 seconds here, how long is it going to take to adopt fully? It's, it's, it's going to be, take at least a decade to get there. Yeah. So we, we are looking at a decade of very strong cloud growth. Uh, the growth rates will decelerate, but, but it's going to take at least a decade. All right, Anurag, great stuff. Uh, appreciate it. Always, we like to get the, the overview of the tech space and then digging down into some individual names. I guess the key issue for a lot of people is, will the tech sector continue to be a leading uh, sector in this equity market uh, when we get a turn upward, or has that been re-rated? Anurag still feels bullish about the tech space. Anurag Rana, so Senior Software and IT Services Analyst for Bloomberg uh, Intelligence. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. I'm going to admit some ignorance here. CVS Health Corp, not CBS Television, which is a company I've followed forever, but CVS, the healthcare company. I didn't know how big this company is. I mean, it's $130 billion in market capitalization. I mean, it's got like 300,000 employees, uh, just a huge company, and it's just a big, big player in the healthcare space, and I need to do some more work on this thing. But anyway, they reported some numbers today, some good numbers. There's also some news out there about um, an opioid, uh, tentative $12 billion opioid pack. So we need to get a little bit smarter on this company. Uh, and so we asked Jonathan Palmer to come in here. Jonathan Palmer is a senior equity research analyst and team leader for the healthcare team at Bloomberg Intelligence. He's been covering the stock in this sector for decades here. Jonathan, give us, you know, again, I don't know anything about this company. What do I, in like one or two sentences, what is this company? Why do I need to know more about it? Sure, Paul. Thanks for having me on. So CVS has really transformed itself over the last two decades. I mean, traditionally, it was a retail pharmacy. Right. Then That's they what a I know. <laughs> called a PBM to help manage drug benefits. And then a couple of years ago, they purchased the big uh, insurer Aetna to now become this uh, three-legged stool of healthcare, retail, PBM, insurance. And really what they're trying to do is become, you know, a provider of healthcare services across the spectrum and, and, you know, come into people's home and provide them services at these retail locations. And they have a really big push lately, although they haven't executed on this plan. They want to move into primary care vis-a-vis -vis like uh, Amazon and One Medical. Well, what is the difference then? I mean, in, in the, our commercial break, you were just talking about how we all kind of think of CVS as still the pharmacy business. It's evolved uh, from from that vision. What could it turn into? Sure. So I think their their vision is that they want to be a provider of healthcare services across the spectrum and, and continuum. And, you know, they want to have you in their network in one form or another, whether that's in their pharmacy, you know, hopefully uh, down the road in one of their doctor's offices and really help. Uh, you know, manage that evolution of, of a patient's care. 
So they reported numbers today. Stock uh, is trading up. Uh, stock's only down like 4 or 5% this year, so outperforming the market. Talk to us about kind of what they reported today and, and kind of what's the call on this stock? Yeah, so the numbers today were pretty good. There was uh, each of the three businesses performed pretty well, a little bit above expectations. Really, the big question coming into today was, you know, what does their outer year growth profile look like? Uh, they have had a plan in place where they expected to get to double digit EPS growth by 2024. They've had a couple setbacks lately. Uh, they had uh, some unfavorable rankings in their Medicare plans. And uh, more recently, they lost a big PBM contract uh, from one of their peers, uh, Centene. And so there was a question whether that double-digit EPS target still stood. And they released guidance this morning on a preliminary guidance on, on 2023. Um, they're going to be high single-digit EPS growth, which is in line with what they said. And they still plan to reach that double-digit target uh, in 24. And it might come uh, through a couple different flavors. It might be through acquisitions, or they might be buying back a lot of stock to get to that. Yeah, I'm just looking at the uh, FA function on the Bloomberg terminal. Kind of gives you the consensus of what's out there from all the sell side. Uh, and for 2024, uh, it's 8.7% EPS growth, so the street's a little bit uh, cautious there. Also, a story out today, I want to get your comment on CVS, Walmart, Walgreens reached tentative $12 billion opioid pack. Give us the background here and, and, and kind of is this good news for the company? This is great news for the company. You know, the opioid issue has been overhang um, not so much for the pharmacies, but the drug distributors for really the last almost five to 10 years. Right. And they were really the first targets of um, these legal actions. And so the, the distributors settled at the beginning of this year for about $20 billion between the big three. Who are it, the big three? Like They're uh, McKesson, Amerisource, Bergen, and Cardinal Health. Okay, okay. And so it's interesting to think about, you know, the the... The DAs and attorney generals in these various states, you know, were going after people who could pay. And my thinking was always that, well, we have CVS, we have Walgreens, we have Walmart. These are all pretty big companies and their ability to pay yep. uh, is there. And, and now we've turned around and we've got a settlement. And so, you know, I think what was an overhang and an unknown for a little while now has some clarity and visibility. And for CVS, it's $5 billion over 10 years. That's a very manageable number. Well, you mentioned Walmart as well. Walmart is not the only company to want kind of their, their foot in healthcare. We've had Amazon, we've had Berkshire Hathaway as well, JP Morgan, I think, mm -hmm. at one point. Is it fair to compare CVS's kind of broader vision to some of these um, mega capped companies? It's interesting because I think everybody uh, who is looking at the consumer is thinking that healthcare is their you know next obvious extension. And that's why you have Walmart and, and Amazon going there. I think CVS sees that that same vision as well, the the consumer-driven healthcare piece. But I think you know where they're a little bit different is they're a more traditional healthcare provider vis-a-vis -vis their PBM and, and insurer. And they look at their peer, United Healthcare, which is the biggest insurer, and how they've more moved more to become more ingrained into the healthcare system, buying practices, buying facilities, you know, really managing a patient end to end. So, real quick here, thirty seconds. If we're going into a recession, do I want to own healthcare stocks? You're asking a healthcare analyst. So of <laughs> yes. <laughs> healthcare. Exactly. The, the tagline is healthcare is extremely defensive. Right. And I mean, I think we've seen that play out in a number of uh, recessionary environments. You know, people still get sick. They still go to the doctor. They still take drugs. You know, that these are all pretty defensive uh, sectors of the healthcare space. All right. Good stuff. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, you know, Bloomberg Intelligence folks, BI go on the terminal. If you've got a terminal in front of you. 
BI Go, and what you're going to get there is world-class investment research, equity research, credit research, and lots, lots more. And we got people like Jonathan Palmer. These are seasoned Wall Street analysts uh, standing behind this research, writing this research. They have some of the best, best data in the business that informs their research. So uh, if you need to get real smart on a topic, on a stock like I do on CVS, BI Go is your place to go. And we thank Jonathan Palmer. He's the senior equity research analyst. He's a team leader leading our healthcare research at Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, and he joins us here in a Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So what does he get? A gold star. <laughs> Just talking to Shanali Basic, uh, Bloomberg News. She covers all things Wall Street for us. She was talking, she was down at Miami at a private equity soiree down there. So we're talking private equity, private credit. Uh, so our next guest fits right in there. Randy Schwimmer, co-head of Senior Lending and Senior Managing Director at Churchill Asset Management. They do that private credit stuff over there. So, Randy, how does your business perform in a world of rising interest rates? You're in the credit business. Yeah, so senior debt is a floating rate instrument, so it improves. Yep. Spreads go up, total yields go up. Uh, we've been waiting for this moment for a long, long time. <laughs> um, but it's also less volatile because these are smaller companies. They don't trade. So it's obviously an improvement with higher rates, but it's also great for the kind of headline volatility that we've been subject to for a long time. That's also something that investors appreciate because when you look at public uh, assets such as fixed income and public equities, they have been very correlated, which is not helpful if you're a 60-40 allocated portfolio. Yep. Everything's going down together. And you've seen the other asset classes' uh, performance year to date. It's been in the red. And yep. It's, it's kind of ugly. Uh, private credit in general has been doing really well. Um, and so that's that's the advantage, floating rate, less correlated, uh, better structures, security, security, and so forth. Randy, it is Fed Day. Happy Fed Day. Thank <laughs> you. Uh, uh, do we see a pivot today? I don't think so. There's been so much invested by the Fed uh, in keeping on and, and making sure that the market believes that their fight against inflation is real. Um, the data that has been coming out has been pretty bullish in terms of the economic strength. You're, you're talking about GDP for the third quarter of 2.6%. That's pretty strong. Yep. Yeah, there was some export uh, data that helped that. Uh, job openings continue to go up. Unemployment, you know, still is low. The labor market is tight. Wages are going up. I mean, you're talking about, you know, I've been calling it a pre-session all year. You, you're, right. well, you're welcome to use that term. Um, because well, it's trade not market a recession. and credit you. Well, yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, but because in a pre-session, we think that a recession is coming. Everybody's predicting something next year. But the economics right now are too strong. So your business, you tend to finance, you know, private equity deals, mid-market type of deals. Give us kind of a typical deal for Churchill Asset Management. Sure. So we have uh, private equity sponsor relationships that come to us for uh, to solve a multiple of variety of, of solutions up and down the capital structure. So they'll come to us and say, hey, we're looking at a very interesting commercial landscaping business. Okay. You know, 35 million EBITDA, 500 million revenues. Um, the great thing about commercial landscaping is in real estate, even if there's no one in the building, yep. somebody's always got to be cutting the lawn, mowing the grass, hedge, hedge clipping, by the way, different kind of hedge fund, right. uh, <laughs> and, and uh, snow plowing. And so that's a kind of business that is steady Eddie throughout any season and any cycle. Um, and with a good sponsor that's going to put in 50, 60% equity into the deal below you, it's an attractive investment for our investors because they're protected. And then the, the debt itself has covenants. So if the performance deteriorates, 
we're back at the table negotiating, plus the private equity sponsors that we deal with, they focus and specialize in defensive sectors, so healthcare, technology, business services, all of which have been doing very, very well through COVID and we expect would do well during a recession. So I just asked this question to Shanali, but I'm going to ask it to you as well and get your take. I believe there's a consensus that the private markets operate at a little bit of a lag relative to the public markets. If there is a reckoning in the public markets, which arguably there already has been for the past 10 months of, of equity carnage, does that mean the private markets are due for one as well? Yeah, I don't think it's so much a lag. It's that it's operating um, with with different parameters. Because these companies are private, unrated, and the debt doesn't trade, you don't see the obvious reaction. So if you know the markets, public equity markets are down, you see an instant reaction in the bond markets, for example. Right. You don't see that. It's not that it's lagging. It's just that it responds to different things because these companies are private. And the advantage of private credit, which is what the issuers and investors are seeing right now, is headline risk will go up and down. And you'll see the public equity markets, for example, go up 500 points one day, down 500 the next day, with no discernible difference in data. The private, private credit markets and private equity are much more stable, so they tend to respond more to, to long-term changes in the economy, in markets. Um, but that makes them, in this world of high volatility, a very a favored asset class. Um, you know, we look at our portfolio right now, it's actually doing really well. We have over 300 companies in the portfolio, and, and the vast majority of them are performing well in terms of revenues and earnings, again, because of the sectors that they're in, which are defensive. I hear, maybe it's just me, but I've, it seems like over the last couple of years, I've heard more and more and more about the private credit business and how it's such a good business. Um, What's the fundraising environment out there? I'm not sure if you guys are in a fundraising mode or not, but what's the environment out there yeah. for raising private credit capital? So we just publicly uh, issued a press release saying that we had raised $12 billion over the last 12, 18 months. Really? So the fund wow. fundraising environment for us has been very good. Um, look, wow. right now, investors uh, like you all are cautious. They're looking at the signs, the kinds of signs that we talked about with the economy, potential recession. And so everyone's kind of taking that extra layer of due diligence, of time, and thinking, hey, what's the rush to do this now? We're not market timers. We're basically, we've been doing this, you know, close to 20 years at Churchill with a long track record successfully over many cycles. Our, our basically story is do this with us for the long run because we don't know and you don't know when the next recession is going to come. So why not, you know, hitch your wagon to a firm and to an asset class that is going to be here for the long run, that performs well during all the downturns, you know, we had positive returns during the 0809 crisis. Mm. Why not, you know, be in that and then benefit right now to what I think is the best market in private credit for over a decade. We're seeing yield to leverage at record highs. We're seeing um, structures tighter. We're seeing leverage lower by a turn or more of EBITDA. I actually think this is a great time to be investing, but you have to do it with somebody who's been through the downturns before successfully. Well, speaking of downturns, we've got about 30 seconds here. When do we see the next one? Well, we, we're not in the business of predicting. We, well, you have to predict to make investments, yeah, no? We, we are always saying it's coming next year. In fact, we model a recession in every deal we do for next year. So in our investment committee, and we've got one this afternoon, I'm sure that will show mm -hmm. we're going to be in a recession next year. If it doesn't happen, my personal belief is that it's going to be a softer recession than a harder recession. I think it's going to be more like 2000, 2001 than 08, 09, because the mm -hmm. banks and the you know, right. financial right. system's in good shape. will be in good shape no matter what 
kind of recession it is. All right, Randy, good stuff as always. Really appreciate making the long commute oh, from your offices over here to 731. Lex, Randy Schrimmer, co-head of Senior Lending. He's a Senior Managing Director. Churchill Asset Management, talking about the private credit business. And again, maybe it's just me, but I've been hearing a lot more about the private credit business. It's a good business. It's attracting a lot of capital. I'm seeing uh, more and more big names kind of get into that space. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for the Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash radio.